Welcome to Teacher Quit Talk. I'm Miss Redacted. And I'm Mrs. Frazzled. Every week we explore the teacher exodus to find out what, if anything, could get these educators back in the classroom. We've all had our moments where we thought, what the hell am I doing here? From burnout to bureaucracy to soul-sucking stressors and creative dead ends. From recognizing when it was time to go to navigating feelings of guilt and regret afterwards, we're here to cut out the gaslighting and get real about what it means to leave teaching. We've got insights from former teachers from all over the country who have seen it all. So get ready to be disturbed. Join us on Teacher Quit talk to laugh through the pain of the U.S. education system. We'll see you there. Hi, I'm Frances Callier. And I'm Angela V. Shelton. And we're Frangela. You know what you need in your life? Hmm. The Final Word Podcast. Yes, you do. That's right. It is the final word on all things political and pop cultural. Where we make real news real funny. Where we inspire you so you can hashtag resist. Subscribe and get a new episode of the Final Word Podcast each week. It's the news we think you need to hear. That's right. We think you need to hear it. Okay? Yeah, it's what we say so. That's right. And because all we do is give, every Thursday you can listen to our hysterical podcast, Idiot of the Week. We round up the stupid because you know what? Somebody has to. Okay. All we do is give. I'm Greg Poliar. This is Prevail. Welcome to the program. We've got a great show. Deb LaPravat is here. She is the subject and the co-host of a new podcast series called A Nation for Thieves. She's not one of the thieves. Spoiler alert. She's the opposite. For 20 plus years, she worked for the FBI. She was an FBI agent and she helped form and run the kleptocracy department of the FBI. What that means is that she worked on these big kind of financial crimes cases that involved usually overseas people stealing money from the home countries. And, you know, where did it go? So like in Moldova, Ukraine, in Bangladesh, a lot of countries in Africa. She's been all over the world, um, you know, kind of digging through the documents and the papers and stuff like that. And um, just had a really interesting, colorful career. So we talked to her about that. Um, I think she's the only person on my show ever that got to like repo a Maybach and drive off with it. Um, she, she tells that story. She now works for an outfit called The Century. So she continues to investigate these crimes, these kleptocratic crimes going on, particularly in Africa. Um, the Century is, is founded in part by George Clooney, which is pretty cool also. So, um, yeah, very excited that she uh, took the time to join me. I don't know. There's not a lot to say. There's I know there's a lot of news going on. I'm so tired of Elon Musk, man. I'm so sick of this guy. Just every day that goes by, it's like, how can I reveal myself to be, you know, more of a scumbag? And then he'll do something even like more petty and vile. And uh, that's just who he is. And I don't know why people continue to invest in his companies or anything like that. I, I have nothing more to say about this guy other than, you know, what I wrote on Tuesday in my Substack which is that, you know, him owning Twitter is a national security threat. I really believe that. I believe that uh, he does not have the, the good of anybody at heart. 
Um, whether or not he's working for hostile foreign powers, certainly the Saudis helped finance his takeover of Twitter. And, you know, he's running the place like he's trying to destroy it or, you know, screw it up in some fundamental way. And uh, that might be because he's a useful idiot. It might be co coincidence. I don't know. But it's dangerous because this is a platform that isn't just actors and sports figures and celebrities and stuff like that and cat pictures. Now, Twitter's important. It's a, it's a huge platform for um, news gathering and news, you know, for me, I, that's how I find out what's happening. I go on Twitter. And for that to be um, subverted by this guy is just, you know, it's a national security threat. And I, I really hope that the government starts to treat it as such. Um, I'm glad that he got booed lustily by the crowd that went to the Dave Chappelle show. I think, you know, Dave Chappelle's also off the list now. Uh, my friend LB did a little rant about him a couple weeks ago on the 5-8, talking about his kind of craptastic um, SNL monologue. And, you know, she was right as usual. He's off the team. But uh, I don't know, man. I, I don't like it at all. So um, I'm hoping that something happens and the government steps in in some capacity and either forces him to sell it or forces him to play by the rules and moderate the damn thing the way it's supposed to be moderated. That's what I'm hoping for. Don't think I'm going to get it. Uh, what else? It's cold here in New York. It's There's snow on the ground, and it's cold, and um, I do not like the cold. There's a hot take. Greg doesn't like the cold, but I don't know. You know, it's not even technically winter yet, so I guess I'm going to have to get used to it. Anyway, I've got nothing else to prattle on about at the top of the show. We'll be right back with Debla Pravat. Absurd you've replatformed cat turd yay and libs of TikTok Elon this is such a crock Ari with the yacht hose we know how the song goes cheered on SNL booed off Dave Chappelle fire the programmers then ask them back throw Twitter down the shitter like Tesla stock ad hoc run fake polls let Trump back on even Donald knows that you're a laughing stock left is turning on you in a hurry woke my virus breathing down your neck New York Times reporters baffled dumb for shills, Barry Weiss and Matt Taki. B, uh-oh, overflow, population exodus, Elton John storming off with Pope Hat, serving all your own needs, my words is OSD, 44 billion up in smoke, what a choke, you, pony buying Putin line, all right, apartheid loser, going broke, it's not the end of the world, just the Twitter, it's not the end of the world, just the Twitter. It's not the end Go of the world, just a Twitter. I'm a mastodon. Deborah LaPravat, welcome to Prevail. Well, thank you very much. Um, it's great to have you. I was very excited to uh, to sit down and talk to you. We were going to do this over the weekend, but you were at a, a convention of um, anti-corruption uh, veterans that you described as kind of like a high school reunion for the good guys. So what was that like? Uh, you know, it was it was great. The Transparency International and the U.S. State Department host this biennial conference where uh, this year 2000 anti-corruption fight fighters, investigative journalists and people from all over the world who are uh, committed to fighting corruption show up. Uh, I think about 180 of the 183 countries were represented. And it was just an excellent opportunity to 
uh, be on panels, but also to attend panels where people are discussing how what techniques they're using for fighting corruption in their country, what's been successful, what hasn't, uh, the danger that anti-corruption activists and investigative journalists face doing their job. So um, it was. I've been doing this for 27 years. So yeah, for me, it was um, an opportunity to see people from all over the world that I've been working with for a long time. I'm excited to talk to you. I've got a lot of questions. But before we get started, te- there's a podcast. It's called A Nation for Thieves. Um, and you are the centerpiece of this podcast. So tell us a little bit about that, um, how it came about and, and what the focuses are on. Yeah, you know, it's a really exciting opportunity. Two and a half years ago, Justin Shinkaro, who is my co-host on the podcast, he had heard um, an interview I had done on another podcast for retired FBI agents and where you get to talk about some of your cases. And uh, he called me and he's like, you know, this is like all new to me, kleptocracy. What the heck is it? And uh, it sounds intriguing and I want to know more. And so I've been working with Justin for the last two and a half years to find an interesting venue to discuss this topic. And uh, we we sat down with Lionsgate and they said, well, let's start with a podcast. And so A Nation for Thieves was born and it's a kind of a 101 kleptocracy introduction to the world of international corruption. Yeah, I, I listen. I listen to it. It's very good, and I think it is. I think it's a nice intro for people that don't, you know, that don't know what the word means, that don't know what's going <laughs> on. I will tell you, people listening to this podcast do know what it means and and do know what's going on. So, you, you not that you know, this isn't necessarily graduate school of kleptocracy here, but it's <laughs> it's it's not one hundred and one. It's like whatever the what's the next one from one hundred and one. I don't know one hundred and two, two hundred and one. I forget how this stuff works. It's been a long yeah. time since I've been in in the halls of, of academia. We're getting our bachelor's degree in uh, kleptocracy. Yeah, yeah, that's what we're gonna, we're going to write our dissertation, and then um, so you, you were with the FBI for for twenty years, um, and you helped found uh, the kleptocracy department, which is now called that. But what was it called originally? How did I guess my main question there is how did that come up for you? Because I listen, I listen to the pod. I don't want to take away from what you say on the podcast and your background. I think people that are interested in that should go listen to it. They should listen to it anyway. Um, But I think that you, you came to the FBI relatively late. It was like a second career for you. And Yeah. uh, yeah, which is cool and not necessarily what the, the usual way to do it. So what happened at the FBI that made you say, I want to focus on this and made the powers that be there say, we want her to focus on this. Tell us about that a little bit. Yeah, um, I turned 35 at the academy. So yes, I uh, I wasn't the oldest student in my class at the academy, but I was close. And when I got to the FBI, I immediately was, uh, I was moved to Detroit, where I worked for two years. And I was able to get back to DC. And of course, I was born in Washington, DC. This is hometown. And um, the first day I was, I, I went to my new squad. My supervisor said, "Hi, I have to give up an agent to work terrorism, and I don't know you, so goodbye." So I was like, "Okay." <laughs> I grabbed my little box of pens and staplers and headed over to uh, terrorism special ops. And for the next two years, I was incredibly well trained on shooting and defensive tactics and surveillance. And um, I spent two years on that squad, and I did a lot of surveillance, which means I sat in a car a lot surveilling people. And I said, well, where can I go next? And there was a money laundering asset recovery squad. And I said, let me try that. So I started not only having my own cases, but if you were the case agent on a drug case, you might call me and say, Deb, uh, you know, my bad guy's selling a lot of heroin or a lot of cocaine. 
He's got three cars, you know, this bank account, and I want you to seize it. So I would come behind that agent too and say, on the day you're arresting him, I'm taking his his Mercedes, his Jaguar, his whatever, and his bank account and a safety deposit box and whatever. So I get a phone call in 2003 and they're like, hey, Deb, FBI San Francisco arrested Pavel Lazarenko, the former prime minister of Ukraine. They only put a $40 million money judgment in his criminal complaint. Would you go after the other $300 million? And I was like, <laughs> uh, that's bigger than all my other cases put together. Yes, of course I will. And uh, that was my first then called international corruption, now called cryptocracy case. It took me years to uh, work with the agent out of San Francisco. We got bank records from all over the world. The mo- It was a- an incredibly complex. Um, the money was from numerous schemes, not one scheme, but six to eight schemes. The money moved through bank accounts all over the world and was not in the United States when I seized it. It was in foreign bank accounts. The guy bought a bank to launder his money. So I ended up seizing $258 million from the former prime minister of Ukraine. And then suddenly I get a phone call. Hey, Debbie, would you go after, you know, $5 billion that was stolen out of Nigeria? Okay. Could you go uh, to Bangladesh and work, help them fight corruption in their country? And so I, I became, I was fortunate. Location, location, location. I was in D.C., Uh, We have default venue when the crime occurred outside of the United States, but the money moved through the United States. So I just, uh, next thing I know, uh, most of the kleptocracy cases were coming to me. I think, I mean, that's super impressive. I think with Nigeria, it's pretty easy, though. You just, you get an email and it says, you know, I'm a prince of Nigeria and all you have to do is wire money to the, no, I'm kidding. Uh, (laughs) And how many people fall for that? Yes. Uh, You know, I I always tell people, if you didn't enter the Canadian lottery, why do you think you won the Canadian lottery? (laughs) Um, That's, that's great. So what now, how did you... Like you're sitting, the first international case you worked on was the Ukrainian prime minister, the first big yes. one. So mm-hmm. how do you start something like that? You 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 Do you liaise with other um, agencies around the world? Do you work with the people in Ukraine? Do you go to like the Cayman Islands or something? Or how, how does it work? Uh, there was a lot of travel involved. You know, I, I was in Ukraine. I was in Lithuania. I flew to Antigua. And so wherever the money is to get additional records, to meet with law enforcement, to see if they already have an investigation going on. But there's always two ways to approach these cases. One is, uh, who's the victim country? Okay, Ukraine, tell me how much how much money left and how did it leave? Was it embezzlement? Was it procurement fraud? Was it siphoning the office state coffers? Was it bribery, kickbacks, extortion? How did the money leave your country? Where do you think it went? And then if there's other pots of money that have already been located and maybe frozen, we just can't forfeit them. I have to trace the money we know exists back directly to criminal conduct. And that takes years. How aware is the FBI or other government agencies of money moving around around the world? Is it really opaque? Like if somebody, I know there's shell corporations and stuff like that, but if lots of money is transferred from say a bank in Cyprus to a bank in, in Luxembourg, does the FBI know or not? It's not that they don't know. It's just that you can't look at every transaction, right? Yeah, and yeah. so, and many of them are cloaked clearly to hide. Uh, it's interesting, but the definition of money laundering is basically any attempt to hide, disguise, or conceal the true nature, origin, or intent. So yes, people shut up shell corporations. They put it in the names of their wives, their girlfriends, their mistress, their children. And so there are going to be millions of transactions that we don't catch However, when you do look, there's usually a paper trail. 
if I see money and I trace it back to coming out of the Ministry of uh, Petroleum, and there's no legitimate reason why the son of the former president should be getting money out of the Ministry of Petroleum, there's probable cause to believe that it's criminally derived. But it, it might be 12 bank accounts in different countries, bank records in different languages, that I have to trace it back from where it is now to show that it was derived from a criminal act. Okay. Interesting. Interesting. So on, in, in the podcast, even you talk a little bit about, about the UK and London in particular as being not, not necessarily a hub of, of money laundering, but certainly a place where oligarchs go to hang out and have enormous wealth. And um, Oliver Bullough's new book, which is called, I think, Butler to the World or something, talks about how the UK has, after the after the, the Second World War, uh, with the loss of, of prestige to you know the United States, went into an economy that was based on basically offering financial, legal, accounting, real estate, and other services to like overseas people who would go there and have lots of money and they didn't want to, you know, disclose where it came from. Now, I think it's obviously really bad to the point where it's called London grad for a reason because it's mostly Russians. But within the last two weeks now, there have been the, these huge hope, high profile arrests of Russian oligarchs in London for money laundering. So when you read that as a retired kleptocracy FBI agent, what are you thinking? Is that is that a sign that, that they're finally beginning to crack down or... Well, you know, it's very interesting because, yes, there were, uh, you know, over the last decade or so, I'd see money being offshored in London real estate. And there was a, a building called One Hyde Park. And you're like, all oh, my bad guys. I'm like, could I just go sit in the lobby, see who comes <laughs> down the elevator? But they're like, no, you won't see anybody because they don't live there. They buy the condo. Their, their money is secure in real estate in which they don't live. So it's it's like the building's kind of empty, but the people who own the properties are, you know, not only like maybe they're Sinaloa drug cartel, maybe they're Russian oligarchs, but they're from all over. The UK has a new uh, unexplained wealth order where they can go after people for unexplained wealth. Well, I have a list of my bad guys living in London. I'm like, okay, Maxim Bakayev, you know, like, go after him. How about Tarek Rahman, who I testified against in Bangladesh? He's living there because they don't have extradition, so they're not forced to send him back to Bangladesh. So, yes, I have a lengthy list of people that I would like um, the serious fraud office in uh, the UK to go after for unexplained wealth. But I will tell you, Scotland Yard has a really good um, uh, squad on proceeds of crime. And the National Crime Agency there has an international corruption unit as well as the FBI does. And we work together on cases all the time. So the two, the Russians that got that got uh, picked up or allegedly picked up, are they on your list or uh, were they, you know, Friedman and the other one, were they people you had, had your eye on or is it a surprise? Uh, well, yeah, I mean, they were on my list, um, but their their wealth wasn't that ex unexplained. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, you hinted at this before when you were talking about the real estate. It made me think of it. I was going to ask this later, but let, let's ask it now, because, you know, one of the things about wealth, these people have this great wealth and they go buy this very nice real estate in London, in New York, in wherever, nice places, you know, so that the value holds up. But then what winds up happening is like, it's just this beautiful mansion that nobody lives in. So it's a complete waste of everything. And it, it that's kind of, there's a real world impact on that because it, it 
it helps inflate the, at least I can talk about New York because I lived there for 10 years. It inflates the market. It, it, it increases the prices for everyone. It decreases the supply. So everyone's rent is higher because these assholes have this, you know, big fancy apartment that no one lives in. So what what are some of the the, the kind of the real world impacts of, of kleptocracy and money la- money laundering and this kind of thing that people maybe don't think about? You know, like in the United States, it, it cuts the average Joe who isn't buying some of these properties anyway, but the average American who might be able to buy some of these properties are cut out of the deal. Um, when I left the FBI in December of 2015, uh, in the months leading up to that, there had been a 70% increase in the sale of luxury California properties to Chinese nationals. So you're like, rationally, you're like, hmm, China is a communist country. Who has all this money to be investing in California real estate? But they come in, they pay cash way over value. So the average person who says, wow, you know, I could afford an $800,000 home or a million dollar home. Well, I can't pay $1.5 million because but the chinese national coming in is willing to do that and of course that plays into not only hurting the average american but it's just part of a longer game that china plays in the united states whether it's the fact that i think the fbi says they open like a thousand cases a week on china intrusion there's baby mills that the fbi has taken down in the past where chinese women will come in six months pregnant spend three months in a lovely resort and then give birth to an american citizen And as that child grows up with U.S. status, they can bring their parents over. And I mean, like we are, we're not missing the ball, but they, China plays a long game and real estate is one aspect of that, but they're not alone. You know, I had uh, Smithfield Bacon for breakfast this morning, and I do believe that's owned by China. (laughs) You know, how many U.S., uh, they're really looking at foreign investment in U.S. farmland. Uh, So that's seriously, you know, do they keep their own employees or do they buy it and break it up? You know, or is that costing U.S. jobs? And then uh, I think it was the Time Warner building. There was a really good article years ago that said 137 condos or something like that inside the Time Warner building were in the name of LLCs. Where you're like, okay, well, one's Jimmy Buffett and one's Tom Brady. I can understand why they don't want like parrot heads (laughs) knocking on the door at night. But one was a Sinaloa drug cartel guy. One was a a Russian oligarch. And I I forget what the third was. But it's uh, news articles like that that I would look at and go, okay, well, you know, there's something on U.S. soil I can take a look at uh, and open, possibly open a case to see, you know, to see what bad money bought those condos. Well, that's good to know, because that means that the investigative journalism is kind of working because it does, you know, part of part of the reason why journalists write this stuff is to get law enforcement to kind of, you know, look at it more closely and kind of work hand in hand. So that's that's good to hear. And of course, the the business with the the baby mills, um, you know, Russia does the same thing in in sunny aisles in Florida where they just, you know, bring people over and it's all fine. And it's interesting how the these countries that are nominally our enemies are just all just want to come here and, and enjoy our uh our freedom and our banking system and, and all that kind of stuff absolutely yeah yeah um okay i have a bunch more questions before we start with those we're going to take a quick break we'll be right back with debla Pravat. hey prevail listeners we want to take a minute to tell you about future hindsight a podcast that takes big ideas about civic life and democracy and turns them into action items for everyday people like you and me they think about what you can do beyond voting and short of running for office turns out there's so many possibilities. On Future Hindsight, host Mila Atmos has compelling conversations with public servants, activists, journalists, and more. Together, they tell the story of your power and agency in the future of this American experiment. You'll always get a dose of hope and inspiration on how you can get involved. 
and it had some really awesome guests. Maria Yovanovitch, the former ambassador to Ukraine, Cecile Richards, former president of Planned Parenthood, Ian Bremer of the Eurasia Group, and my friends Jen Tob and Allison Gill. Future Hindsight is a weekly podcast. You can listen on your favorite app or on futurehindsight.com. Check it out. Okay, we're back with Debla Pravat. Before we go back to real estate, let's go into the art world. Um, okay. I've had a couple of people on the podcast talking about, and will in the future, talking about art. And it's interesting to me that that's one of the only ways like you can sell something and not have to disclose anything about the buyer. So it feels like uh, artwork, like especially the the master kind of artwork, is a really, really rich avenue for money laundering. Because first of all, the, the Picasso and the Van Gogh are going to retain their value. And, uh, and second of all, there's no mechanism from the government to make anybody say who bought the thing or how much, you know, and uh, why, first of all, why is that? Why, why would the government not want that? Well, I'll tell you, it's really interesting because um, as of six hours or 10 hours ago, the U.S. shot down the new Enablers Act. The Enablers Act would have required certain financial people like trust companies and hedge fund managers. And I, uh, I I know we tried to get arts and antiquities into that bill um, where they would be required to no, not only know the source of the money purchasing or that they're managing, but they would have to know their customer who is the true beneficial owner. And uh, the Senate shot that down uh, today. So that is really bad news. I'm, I'm like, well, I'm sorry, but why would the United States not want to lead the way in fighting corruption? Why would the United States not want to have full transparency? But you know who was, who was not supporting the enablers bill? Sotheby's, as well as the American Bar Association. So, but prosecutors, law enforcement, we were supporting it. People, yeah. you know, so you just have to ask, and you're like, I'm sorry, is so much of your arts and antiquities sold to people that are of questionable and, and dubious uh, backgrounds that you don't want to know? And, and uh, what's also another shame is a lot of people that buy these uh, arts and antiquities as a money laundering vehicle, they store them in warehouses where nobody right. sees them for a decade or two, right? Yeah. So, I mean, th there's a lot. Um, but, you know, I work for the Clo uh, George Clooney now uh, in the century investigating uh, corruption in Africa. But the Clooney Foundation for Justice, which is George and Amal out of New York, their group just did a really good investigation on the way stolen arts and antiquities are funding ISIS. So, I mean, there, a lot more scrutiny should be given to the world of arts and antiquities. Yeah, especially the antiquities piece, because I my day job, I work with coin, at, a, at a coin place. We just it's just cheap stuff that we have. But there was a big thing, especially after, um, you know, the, during the Iraq war where stuff just got boosted out of Iraq and found its way to the, uh, you know, into the London uh, antiquities market. Um, I and read cuneiform. So, yes, um, <laughs> uh, the FBI recovered a statue and they're like, Debbie, don't you? read dead languages? And I'm like, well, some. And they're like, do you read cuneiform? I'm like, well, that's one of the only ones I can read. <laughs> and so I transcribed six rows of writing on the helmet of the statue. And I'm like, well, it says Adam Ariah. He's an Arcadian in the army. Bagu, Bagu Aru Mazda, the great god Aru Mazda, bestowed greatness upon him. So I could date the statue to the end of the sixth century BCE. And I'm like, haha, it will never come in handy again. But it came in handy once. <laughs> <laughs> I think you're the second person I've had on my podcast that can read cuneiform, by the way. Which yeah. is, I don't know what the chances are of that. <laughs> 
Yeah, but that stuff, I mean, I remember there was a thing where there was a big bust in London where they were arresting a lot of Syrian, you know, antiquities dealers who had stuff like that. And um, and of course, the there was the whole Hobby Lobby thing where they were bringing in these biblical artifacts. And Yeah, and the, um, there's an FBI unit out of Chicago that uh, recovers stolen arts and antiquities. So they have a lot of like Egyptian art that has come in, has been returned to the Ministry of Antiquities there. Uh, I always, I'd love to have been on that squad. I'm like, oh, is that a Stradivarius? Is that a priceless <laughs> Chaucer manuscript? Uh, can I touch it? <laughs> like, no. <laughs> But you got to, I mean, was it fun for you to just like see somebody's jag or, or, you know, some nice car? Did you get to like drive the thing away? You know, often I drove the thing away. And uh, matter of fact, but like, I think I see it's like a Maybach, a $200,000 Mercedes. And I'm like, it had no gas. And I'm like, I look at the car, I'm like, where's the gas tank? Like, where's the gas tank? And how do I start you? Right. I mean, back in the day, my car started with a key. And, you know, you sit and you're like, Okay, you guys, I need to find the closest gas station so we don't run out of gas in the car I seized. Um, but oh, yeah, uh, I mean, there would be times where I would take a drug dealer's car from his girlfriend and I'd walk up to her and I said, you know, I'm here to seize this car and I'm going to ask you one question. And before you answer me, realize that lying to me is a federal offense and I will come after you. So I'm going to ask you one time, is that your car? No, ma'am. Thank you very much. It's going with me. <laughs> <laughs> So, yeah, I mean, you know, but the car was clearly the proceeds of narcotics trafficking and was facilitating undercover uh, sales of narcotics. So not yeah, not uh, very good undercover. If you're driving around a, a quarter of a million dollar car, it's maybe not the greatest cover, you know. Exactly. <laughs> maybe don't do that. Um, and just to just to um, close the circle on the art discussion, I mean, you mentioned it. You know, there's these free ports like there. I found out I, I had Hal Weissman on the show who wrote a book about Delaware. There is a free port in Delaware where a lot some of this art lives and will just always be there and nobody's going to get to see it. And it's, you know, it's a shame. These are like priceless things. And these people that buy them don't they don't care that it's like this lovely piece of art. They just they're just buying it to launder the money with it, which is, again, one of these, you know, tangential, but still very real effects of, of how this stuff affects people in real life. It'll keep its value better than a Bitcoin. So, yes. <laughs> <laughs> well, the thing about the, you, you know, with super pricey coins and especially with this art, there's always going to be more buyers than you know, that than objects to sell. I mean, always, always, always. So it's a good, you know, it's a good racket. And if you're an art dealer and you don't have to worry about um, disclosing your the person who's selling it to you, I'm sure that, you know, you make quite a nice living, um, you know, good for you. Uh, so, okay, let's move on to real estate now, because I think real estate is another big, another big one. Um, how do, just in a, in a sort of remedial way, how does it work with laundering real estate? Um, my understanding is just, you know, some person comes in and says, I want to buy this. I have a shell corporation. Uh, the listing price is a million dollars. I'm going to pay 1.8 or whatever, uh, in cash. And then they say lovely. And then, and then they sell it, you know, for whatever they sell it for. And then once it's sold, it's, it's laundered and legit. Is that, do I have it right? Or is there more to it than that? Well, it's never legit. Well, yeah, <laughs> it may yeah. appear so. Um, yeah. But yeah, I mean, you basically have it right. I mean, somebody wants to come in and maybe layered between two or three. In other words, the shell company they bought may be owned by two other shell companies, which is owned by a trust. And that 
is the layers uh, that an agent will have to dig through to find out the true beneficial owner. But it's interesting, like uh, um, I was investigating uh, Kolo Waluko, an, an individual out of Nigeria, and he had bought several uh, multi-million dollar mansions in California. And uh, so, you know, I, I was able to trace them back to him, but I don't believe all five were for him. I believe he had purchased others for other people, but I do things like, you know, I stop the mailman who gets the, you know, who gets the light bill here? You know, um, <laughs> I talked to the cabana boy and I'm like, who, you know, who pays you to, you know, who, who's your contract with to maintain the pool and the grounds? So some company is paying the electricity bill, is paying a, a gardener and a pool company. And so um, I start tracing it back from that because that might be a faster method than going through five shell companies while I'm doing who really owns the property, where was it bought, what was the money derived from, where did the money come from, is the shell, is that shell company, was it set up just for this, or was it pre-existing and it's been used for other things? Interesting. I mean, in New York City, one of the only people that that accepted, uh, you know, LLCs as buyers in real estate is, of course, our former president, Mr. Trump, um, who did who started doing this in the 80s. Um, did he now I know you did a lot of work over, you know, with overseas things. Did Was he on your radar at all in kleptocracy or or not? Was that not, no? not at all? Because again, like I, I'm investigating money that was looted out of Nigeria. I'm investigating yeah, yeah. bribes that were paid in Bangladesh. I'm, you know, so no, uh, former President Trump was never on my radar. Okay, because he's got uh, he's sold a lot of a lot of stuff to these Russians in New York City. So we're talking about the international scene. So which countries? are the most corrupt, would you say? And which people, or or if you don't want to say what country, what people are the most egregious that you've dealt with in your time? Well, it's really interesting because right now I work uh, greed that fuels war crimes and atrocities in South Sudan. For the last two years, South Sudan has been the most corrupt country in the world, according to Transparency International's Perceived Corruption Index. And I'm like, and when you're beating out Syria, China, Russia, <laughs> Yemen, uh, Burkina Faso, uh, and some other countries, you're like, man, you're corrupt. And and it is. It, it's it's looting to a point where your people are starving, right? Where your military, uh, we consider it a violent kleptocracy because the military, the secret police, the security service are used against your citizens to keep you in power because that keeps you in charge of the money flow. Um, but I would say, you know, once Jinping made himself president for life in China, you're no longer a democracy or even a communist country. You're a, a dictatorship. Uh, Russia, clearly uh, multiple yeah. invasions into Ukraine. Uh, the They say annex. Annex is a nice word for we stole Crimea. And, um, you know, it, what's interesting is there are numerous African countries. So you can kind of like spin the world and you're like. Liechtenstein is one of the big money laundering havens of the world. Uh, there's some islands like Vanuatu and, and Nuaru that nobody even knows exist. Nuaru is 15 miles across, and yet there were a thousand banks on Nuaru. They're not there <laughs> now. I mean, it was electronically, they were the banks on the island. So, it, you know, if, if you're looking at corruption, you're like, who's looting the most? I can tell you when I left the FBI in 2015, I had at least 10 cases on my desk where countries were missing well over a billion dollars. So right now, I think 
think Lebanon's like missing $11 billion. Moldova's missing between 10 and $20 billion. Um, Malaysia lost 5 billion in the one MDB one case. Um, a billion dollars left Moldova in three days in one case. I mean, and I just keep, I mean, billions, 10 to 20 billion has left uh, South Sudan in the last decade. And so they're just astronomical amounts of money. And um, in, in every case, the civilian population is who suffers. So let's take let's take the Moldova case just so because I'm trying to wrap my head around this just for my own you know I'm sort of a macroeconomic scale I'm trying mm-hmm. to visualize how the money sloshes around so the money is they've taken billions of dollars from Moldova where does it come from originally is it just is it tax it is it taxes is it tax money uh, well, now, or... you know like uh, when uh, right before I left I was in Moldova uh, because they had lost a billion dollars in three days and what it was was that people that were very high up in the government or well connected to people high in the government and the banks. Again, the best way to launder money is to own the bank. So, uh, you know, when we say state capture, it's because those political elites own the banking system, the media system, and they, they you know, all the lucrative parts of the uh, the government. Well, uh, these individuals got loans and paid them back, got loans and paid them back, got loans, paid them back until they borrowed a billion dollars, you know, numerous loans, totaling a billion dollars in three days, the money left and they didn't pay it back. So it was a very complex scheme. And I mean, that was well over eight to 10 years ago. And there was no political will by that regime and the following regime to go after the money. There is now. And there are people actively going after that and money that's been looted since then. But I mean, that's a complex case. It, it, it was drained out. It was like at the time, something like 12 or 14% of their gross domestic product, domestic product for the country yeah. of Moldova. So yeah, it really hurt their country. I don't even know. Like it's it just the, the mentality to steal on that, on that scale. I just, I, I just don't even understand it. I mean, you're just, you know, if you're living in the country, like in South Sudan, why would you want to live in a place where people are starving and there's no facilities and the roads are shitty and all the, you know, when it, you're still going to be rich. I mean, you're still going to be wealthy. It's just, it's just a. Well, they live well. Right. Yeah. I mean, the people who have money, the average Sassadin is not. But it's really interesting. I worked uh, Sonny Abacha, the former president of Nigeria. He took two point six three billion directly out of state coffers. He would write a message, you know, like uh, there is a matter of natural national security. I need 14 million dollars to provide uh, bulletproof vests to my police department. And his head of um, the military or his security advisor would take that to the central bank and leave with $14 million in cash. And of course, they never bought the bulletproof vest. And in that way, they took $2.63 billion. And then he got another $2.6 billion or so in extortion plans, um, bribery, and kickback schemes, awarding contracts and getting a kickback. So when he takes the money out of the Bank of Nigeria, what's what's the I it's on the tip of my tongue. What's the currency in Nigeria? It's the Naira. Uh, Naira. Is it in Naira? Is it in no. like the polymer Naira? No, it's in USD. That, that's it, the, yeah. You know, and that's why okay. the US is so successful at helping our foreign partners uh, recover money is because like in South Sudan, nobody in South Sudan wants US, South Sudanese dollars. And, and so any trade that is done, anytime money leaves the country, it's leaving in US dollars. And that means it is hitting US financial institutions. It's probably clearing through the Fed Reserve Bank. Maybe it hit Bank of New York and, and um, Citibank on its way to to the Caymans. And that gives the United States venue often to go after those funds. Okay. All right. I'm just, I'm picture. I'm just trying to imagine 
the, the sloshing around of the money. Sometimes, honestly, for me personally, it's hard to, it's hard to wrap my mind around it. You know, it's oh. just, I can't, it's too much. It's too big. The scale. I had bad guys write checks for two, $248 million checks payable to bearer. <laughs> and right. And then they walk into a bank in the Caymans and deposit it. And, um, or uh, seven, uh, Sonny Abacha handed $700 million in cash to his son, Muhammad. And we interviewed Muhammad and we're like, when, when your dad handed you 700 million, did you like say, hey, dad, where's the money coming from? He goes, it it never crossed my mind. <laughs> yeah. yeah, sometimes you know not to ask, I suppose. Um, he didn't want to know. <laughs> yeah, if he, if he can't know, plausible deniability, I suppose. Um, so another person that I had on my podcast, another guest, um, is Kimberly K. Hong, who's a, a professor at the University of Chicago and wrote a book called Spiderweb Capitalism. And in that book and in the interview, she talks about this idea of playing in the gray. She was in in Southeast Asia uh, studying the the economies of like um, Vietnam and, and uh, Myanmar and uh, places like that in that neck of the woods. And there's this idea of playing in the gray, which is um, she explains how these super rich people and the people that help them make the money. And that means some of the stuff they do isn't legal but it's not illegal either it's kind of in this gray area where people are going to keep pushing to uh to in, until they're told no you're not allowed to do this like bribes um the way that bribes are are considered in other countries in the united states would be illegal but in vietnam wouldn't be because it's just the way that things are there so um is that something that you encountered uh, in, in your time at uh investigating all this stuff Th things that were the sort of not illegal but not legal legal either and kind of in the middle well what it's really interesting because in almost all countries paying bribes is illegal but they don't have either it's it, you know they just they don't look into it right i mean yeah. in gosh 2007 i got asked hey debbie would you go to bangladesh and help them fight corruption in their country because if we can put some of these politicians in jail they can't run for office again <laughs> and so i'm like absolutely next thing i know i'm on a 20-hour flight to dhaka and um i get there and uh you know there's multinationals paying bribes and there was a 40 no an 80 million dollar contract for telecom and china was paying bribes over here and Siemens of Germany, and they admitted to it, was paying bribes over here. So I, uh, Siemens came forward. They wanted to be on the stock exchange in the US. They said, we paid all these bribes. Here's who we paid. Here's how we paid them. So I had evidence of the bribes paid in Bangladesh. I contact the FBI agent in Beijing. And I said, hey, look, all my evidence indicates that Huawei paid bribes to get half, to have this contract broken in half and half, 40 million go to them, 40 million go to Siemens. Um, is there an anti-corruption division there that I could work with? And they're like, yeah, the Olympics are coming, Huawei stayed owned, you will get no cooperation. And, <laughs> um, you know, and I would need evidence out of that country and I and I wasn't going to get it. It's not so much that it's a gray area because most countries do have uh, laws against uh, abusive office for self-enrichment. And most countries that are paying the bribes have uh, maybe not the Foreign Corrupt Practices Act, but something similar. And again, so many of these foreign countries are on the U.S. Uh, stock exchange that like Siemens wasn't yet, but they're subsidiaries. So uh, we had venue. So 
it's more that there is no rule of law in those countries. So they have yeah. the laws. The laws are on the book. Uh, the anti-corruption commissions are funded by the government. So whoever's in power can cancel the case. The prosecutors may be in their pocket, the judges. So you're an investigator. You did a great investigation. You take it to the prosecutor and that prosecutor is told, um, make it that go away. So it never makes it to trial. So, but that's where the, the U S might be able to step in and go, well, we can't prosecute you, but we can take the money. <laughs> Which is better in some cases. Yeah, so, I think so. It was interesting to hear on, on the podcast, talking a little bit about Bangladesh and what it's like, because I never really hear about Bangladesh. I, I had never come across that particular country in this context before. Um, and I think you know the wealthy people live very very well and the rest of the population does not so what what's it like there i mean i've never um i mean yeah you know what you find is like you'll be on an elevator and you think you know what i'm going to take the stairs because their their electricity is intermittent <laughs> and i really don't want to be on the the um elevator when during the next blackout that might last an hour so i mean yes bangladesh has the longest shoreline in the world uh they have a lot of natural resources but it's uh, it's plagued by uh corruption like i said i went in and i immediately opened four investigations uh into companies paying bribes it's a great case for international cooperation. A lot of the money was going to Singapore. Singapore was working very well with the United States and Bangladesh to get me bank records. Um, I seized about $3 million that was traceable to the son of the former prime minister. And the bank account in Singapore was called Zaz, Z-A-S-Z. And he, when I seized the money, he's like, that's not my bank account. I don't know what she's talking about. And I laugh and I'm like, well, your passport was used to open the account and Z-A-S-Z <laughs> are the initials of your wife and children. And, you know, it's like, okay. Uh, but I took his statement where he said, that is not my money. Because now he's going to either have to perjure himself to go after the money. He chose not to fight it. And we were able to forfeit the money. And we returned it to the government of Bangladesh so that they could fund their attorney general's office and continue to fight corruption. That's good. And hopefully it goes because I know that's a problem sometimes, too, where the money gets seized out of the countries and then is returned and then is immediately just boosted again, depending on the, the level. I, the United States takes great steps to ensure that that won't happen. Um, last year, we did uh, we returned 311 million that I had seized from uh, the Abacha regime uh, in 2020. And we just said, look, President Buhari, you're great, but there are people in your cabinet that may be not so great. So you tell us what are your priorities? And President Buhari I said, I want three major infrastructure projects. And so the money, uh, there, the stipulations where the money goes to these three projects, that civil society and investigative journalists have full disclosure as to the you know, vetting of the subcontractors that they're not owned by the son of the president and disclosure of how the money is spent and and can follow up and say, look, this road was built substantially because somebody siphoned off the money. So, I mean, we take great steps to make sure there's transparency when we're returning the funds and and accountability. OK, no, that's good. That's good to know, because I know in the past, in, in certainly in Britain and other places, that's that's been a problem. Um, OK, moving westward from Bangladesh, uh, let's talk about Ukraine, because you bring it up a little bit in the podcast, uh, in your podcast. And obviously it's in the news right now. And I feel like 
everything that's happened in the last six, seven years can be traced back to stuff that was going on in Ukraine and Putin, Putin's relationship with Ukraine, um, the former prime minister who stole all the money and built that ridiculous palace, um, Manafort, uh, who was, you know, basically workshopping ideas in Ukraine about how to fuck with, with elections in the same way that you would open a play in Provincetown before bringing it to Broadway. Um, and, you know, in, in 2014, the invasion of Crimea, and now all of this horrible stuff that's that's happened in the in the atrocities and the war crimes. Oh, and I forgot Trump the, Trump doing the Zelensky thing. I knew I forgot something. Uh, the extortion attempt on Zelensky. Do us a favor though. Um, what's your take on on Ukraine? Like big picture, like what, from your vantage point. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's funny, but not funny. But I mean, 2014, Yanukovych flees from uh, Ukraine. And I get a phone call. Deb, we need boots on the ground in Kiev. And I'm like, you need my boots on the ground? <laughs> okay. Next thing I know, I'm in Kiev, right? And I mean, the, the, the Maidan, the center square is still on fire from the protests and everything. And I go to Mezhigoria, the estate you were talking about with the gold toilet. And, and, and it is the epitome. It's now the uh, Museum of Corruption is what they call it there now. <laughs> because, I mean, there's a Spanish galleon floating in the pond behind Mezhigoria. But when I got there, uh, there were divers who were digging papers that they had thrown in the uh, lake to hide them, right? And, and so we were putting them in the sauna to dry out so we could read them. They, they had burnt, there was a burn pile of documents and we had forensics, I'm a forensic science, but we brought uh, scientists, but we brought forensic scientists in. So like, can we recover any of the non burned documents and and like you know is there a paper trail there but i mean under yanukovych was putin's man right yep. and so under yanukovych almost 40 billion dollars left the country I, I literally consider it the financial rape of a country because yep. what it did is it weakened their military they had i mean they had no bullets i honestly i walked in i go hi i'm debbie lapravat i'm with the fbi and they're like could you come back we're being invaded <laughs> and then i'm like we're here to help. And literally, they had no bullets in their guns, right? They were unequipped for the... And so it opened the door because Putin knew they had no money, no no military, nothing had been invested. They had no bullets. And so he just stomped right in and he stole Crimea. And then, of course, Poroshenko, after him, another $5 billion or so left under Poroshenko. So, I mean, Ukraine's missing $45 billion. Um, I'm always saying the Russian oligarch yachts that they're seizing, I think that's a great thing to do. But it's really hard to take an asset from one person and say, you know, I don't like you. We're going to sell your asset. And we're going to give it to somebody else. I said, if you want to help Ukraine, let's globally go after some of that 45 billion that left under Yanukovych and Poroshenko. And if we find it, we can give it back. If you look at the state-owned companies in Crimea, the oil company, the oil rig, the gas company that was stolen by Russia when they took Crimea, any money they've generated is the interstate transportation of stolen property because they stole those companies. So can we find that money? Can we give it back to Ukraine? President Zelensky is going to need billions of dollars to rebuild his country. The money's got to be someplace. It's a lot of money to hide. I mean, $45 billion is, this is that's real money, you know? <laughs> you know, I, I tell people, I go, if you take a, you know, a couple million... Oh, you can get like plastic surgery, never getting that back. You can be a coke addict, never getting that back. You could lose money in Vegas, never getting that back. But if you take billions, you buy a mega yacht, you buy a, a 54 million Bombardier aircraft, you buy a Twitter. villa or two or three. And um, so, you know what? That's something I can trace and seize and take possession of. Yeah. You could buy Twitter if you have enough. It's fun. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. It's probably for sale soon. Um, so, why do you think this this doesn't have to do with corruption necessarily, but why do you think Putin invaded when he did now? 
um, after Trump, before the thing, what, what do you, is there anything that you see from your vantage point that, that made you think he did it at this time? You know, I mean, I wouldn't even presume to, uh, to be an expert in geopolitics. Uh, I know that the, he normally invades in winter because nobody and everybody in Europe uses Gazprom oil. Yeah. And they can't like that's what happened when in 2014, when he invaded uh, Ukraine, the other countries there can't go up against him because they will freeze out. You know, they need uh, uh, oil coming out of uh, out of Russia. So he always invades in the winter. And, uh, you know, he's done it again. I mean, in the summer. But I mean, those other countries now are afraid for their own borders and are more likely to cooperate. But if we don't help Ukraine, we really don't know who's next. Yeah. Why would, Why should he stop? He's not going to stop. Hitler didn't yeah. stop. He didn't stop. He, he didn't stop in 2014. He didn't. He's just going to keep going. Um, OK, now we're going to come back to the United States. OK, uh, we're going to go to Delaware. We're going to go to South Dakota. We're going to oh. go to Nevada. Um, what <laughs> what's the deal with these places? Why is our country, which is supposed to be this beacon of transparent transparency and anti-corruption and all this stuff? Why do we allow these um th these states that just uh let you hide stuff you know what because we're not going there on vacation man let me tell you um yeah <laughs> it, I mean, it, when i'm abroad teaching i teach a class like how do we get our money back to countries who have been looted right mm -hmm. and and one of the things people say is like well why don't you clean up your own backyard meaning delaware nevada oregon wyoming and montana and other uh, places where it's i think I think it was just said that the United States is one of the easiest places in the world to uh, hide your beneficial ownership. My question for like someplace like Delaware, I would love someone to do a real statistical analysis, say, okay, let's say you incorporate a million companies a year in Delaware. Of those, how many actually have a footprint in Delaware beyond the piece of paper? Of the remaining, how many are even in the United States? And of the remaining that aren't so let's say it's 20 percent or 30 percent physically in the united states if you're not in delaware are you skirting your own taxes from you know, the state you are located in um, by being a delaware corporation but bigger for all the ones who have no footprint in the united states at all you have to ask why did you want to be a delaware corporation i've been uh, promoting the enablers act uh which again died today in the senate but i had a case after yanukovych fled uh, where Alden Group, an Oregon company, had been used to get a $60 million vaccine contract in Ukraine. And they actually provided $30 million worth of vaccines, but on one contract, somebody walked with $30 million in their pocket. So the next regime came in and they sued Alden Group in Oregon. There's no Alden Group. This piece of paper, right? I mean, there's no there's nobody there to sue. There's no bank account. There's no business to walk into. And so I... Uh, was asked to look into it. And I called the registered agent who incorporated Olden Group. And it's funny, he has no know your customer obligation. Um, and so that's one of the loopholes we're trying to shore up. And so I call him, I said, who called you? Who called you and said, I need a Delaware and an Oregon company? He goes, oh, a service provider out of Belarus. And I'm like, well, how many companies have you incorporated for that service provider? He goes, oh, 1,956. And so the first thing I thought is I could just open a case and spend the next five years working that. So who are these 1,956 companies? If they're not in the United States uh, physically, where are they? And then what were they used to do? 
And so I, I you know, made it a habit to look to data mine uh, cases where a Delaware or a U.S. corporation was used to do an Italian Ponzi scheme. Um, I had a general out of Congo who sent money to Namibia to uh, upgrade his waterfront property. <laughs> and it's funny because whoever he sent the 9000 you know, I think it was $9 million, stole it. So there was a court case. So I got the court <laughs> records and the money was sent from a bank account in the name of a Delaware corporation. So I'm like, I'm sorry, Delaware, are you telling me that you're against transparency because so many of the companies that you're incorporating and the revenue you're generating is derived from some suspicious origin? I don't understand that. It's very strange. The, the What's the guy's name that's the Panama Papers? Is it Fonseca? Fonseca? What's his name? Fonseca, uh, yeah, the, yeah. The, the, the law firm. The Panamanian, yeah. yeah. The, that yeah. guy, uh, Hal Weitzman was on my show. He wrote the, a book about Delaware, talking about all this corruption in Delaware. He mm -hmm. told the story where that guy was asked years ago before anything happened when he didn't he didn't realize he had to be quiet about it. People were asking, you know, what do you do? And he was like, oh, I move the money here and then I go there and then I move the money from Panama to this place and da, da, da. And they finally said, well, where do you keep your money? And he was like, Delaware. You know, yeah. It's the best place to keep it. They're not going to look for it there. And uh, I just thought that was pretty funny. Like this, And you'll never see it in my name. Yeah, right? exactly. Yeah. So, you know, it is that it is that kind of place. Um, so this enabler, this enabling act, enablers or enabling? Enablers. Um, is there hope of it being revived in some different form? We're going to keep trying. Is that is that the plan? Well, I mean, we're definitely going to keep trying. It was it was in the defense um, appropriations bill that was going through, oh, okay. and so they removed it. And you know, again, I just say I'm sorry, but United States, why don't we want to be leading the fight on corruption? Why is transparency and true beneficial ownership a bad thing? What's really interesting, lawyers were, uh, the like American Bar Association was against this. I'm like, because they're like, oh, it's going to affect uh, attorney-client privilege. And I'm like, well, you don't have to be a lawyer to manage a hedge fund. You know, it's like being a pilot and a lawyer. You're a pilot and you get, and you fly into a, a, a electrical wire and you're like, what? I'm a lawyer. Well, no, it has nothing to do with that. So you can manage a hedge fund. You can manage money. You can do a lot of things without being a lawyer. So it won't affect attorney-client privilege. And again, uh, I just don't get why anybody would want to be on that side of a justice issue. Um, if you track Joe Man Joe Manchin to his yacht or his Maserati, maybe he can tell you if if you could figure out how to open the door. You know, you must have taken you must have repoed a Maserati in your time, yeah. Let's say a Bentley. Uh, like I said, I've done a Bentley, several Jaguars, um, and you know, no, uh, Lamborghini. And I will tell you, the hardest part: getting in and out of it. Yeah, the butterfly doors. Yeah. I mean, literally, you roll out. It's like three inches above the ground, and you're like, there is no graceful way to exit that vehicle. I guess if you have one, you just stay in it all the time. I guess that's that's what you're doing. Well, now I get a flatbed truck, and I'm like, uh, put it on there. <laughs> Not as much fun, but more more efficient, certainly. Yeah. Um, okay, I've got two more questions for you, okay. and 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 then I'll 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 let you get on with your day. Um, the first thing is people listening to this, like I said, know about this kind of thing. Is there anything that we can do to help? Just a a, a normal average person uh, listening to the podcast, or me, or something, other than just drawing attention to what a problem this is. What can people do to help the cause here? 
You know, keep your eyes and ears open because everybody lives next door to somebody or you're working for Like maybe you're the pool guy uh, in L.A. <laughs> who's uh, cleaning the pool in a $25 million mansion where you know the guys from Colombia or China or Russia or, or, you know, he makes it clear he's a Russian oligarch. And so you can go to the FBI.gov webpage and just say, I'm just sharing this information. I think this uh, property may belong to someone who's doing this. And um, realtors, you know, I my sources were always like when I, uh, if I'm looking at Venezuelan money, first thing I did, I would call every high-end real estate agent in Miami. And say, look, you've already made your commission. I'm not trying to take that away from you. What I'm saying is, who do you sell to? Uh, what property should I be looking at? I would get phone calls from car dealerships going, hey, Deb, we just sold these 10 Hummers to these guys. And I mean, that's <laughs> how I got my cases. I went into Tiffany's uh, in D.C. Uh, or Northern Virginia to introduce myself. And they thought I was casing the joint. <laughs> I'm like, no. Call the FBI. They'll verify who I am. I just want to say, next time you sell that Rolex uh, for cash to someone, I uh, I would just like a phone call after they leave. <laughs> this is good. Yeah, I never. I, I'm glad to see that they'll do that. That they'll they'll you know take the money and then oh, okay, that, that's because well, you know they're interested in their commission. And so sure. I said, look, I'm not trying. And I'm like, by all means, sell the $200,000 Maybach because it's much easier for me to just go take that back. <laughs> you know, now I know, and I can tell you that he laundered it because he paid cash. He asked them to not fill out any of that pesky paperwork uh, that Treasury requires, and he put it in his girlfriend's name. So, uh, yeah, uh, now I have money laundering and other uh, hits. You mentioned the, the the Tiffany's in D.C. and it reminded me of the Riggs Bank because I went I went to Georgetown and the that bank used to be right on the corner of Wisconsin and M. Is this big beautiful building, and then it went it went under. Um, yes. So before we tell us a little bit about what happened with that, because I, I I arrested uh, the vice president of Caribbean and uh, African accounts at Riggs Bank, but um, yeah, uh, Riggs Bank was knowingly laundering money for the embassies. Right, it used to be the most important bank in the world and the most important city in the world, and I think twenty two something president former presidents had banked there, but most of the embassies banked there. So um, I know that they walked in one day with a suitcase full of stuff with cash. Uh, it was going into the bank account for the um, president Obiang, the head of the president of. Equatorial Guinea, and they would deposit it and not fill out the required paperwork, a currency transaction report that's required for any transaction over $10,000. And this is 3 million shrink wrapped, you know, certainly falls within the, that. And it was things like that. And when it came to light, um, I get a phone call because uh, Simon Carreri, he's uh, since passed, but he was knowingly laundering money uh, and stealing from some of the accounts. And I call the embassy of Benin and I'm like, could I speak? to someone and they're like could you call back monday i'm like well i want to talk to you guys are the victim of a crime they're like okay could you call back monday <laughs> you know i was like okay i'll call back monday <laughs> but it, it's the egregiousness that now i think now that would be so much harder for a bank to you know get by compliance officers but yeah it, it cost them their reputation and P, uh, Riggs Bank no longer exists they got bought by PNC and yeah that I passed that gold dome I was hanging out yeah. in Georgetown too man and uh, back in the <laughs> yeah. day when disco lived and uh, I would look up and there was the gold dome it's a beautiful building I mean it yeah. really is it's a, it's it's sort of this you know uh, landmark basically when you're when you're walking by there so um okay so last question 
you work for uh, an outfit called The Century, which is Clooney's outfit. So is George Clooney as cool as he seems in the movies or not? Is he like Danny Ocean? Like what, what's what, what's your take? Cooler. He's cooler. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I, I mean, uh, I see George every couple of years, uh, like if we're uh, doing something. But I mean, he is briefed on our investigations and what we're doing. And so uh, George and John Pendergast run the century that I work for. And we we don't just investigate corruption. It's corruption that's fueling conflict, war crimes, atrocities. And then uh, George and his wife, Amal Clooney, run the Clooney Foundation for Justice out of New York. And, and they use her skills as a barrister to try to help bring cases against multinational companies that might be polluting or uh, funding a militia or other things. So, yeah, not only I mean, I walked in in 2019 to a press conference and he goes, Deb, hug, kiss, kiss. And I'm like, did someone just remind you who I was? <laughs> the blonde girl is Debbie. She's worked for you. You know, but I mean, he, he is so dedicated. And you know what? They put their money uh, up to support really good things. Uh, we have like 30, 40 employees at the Century. We're working in Sudan, South Sudan, Congo, CAR, Libya, Zimbabwe, Myanmar, areas where a lot of other people in the world aren't looking. And so uh, the people of those countries don't have a voice. And we hope that some of the evidence we collect can be used to affect change. It's great work. I'm I, I'm a big fan of his anyway. I like him and, and the fact that he's doing good. There's been a lot of lately like people that celebrities that I like have come out and, uh, and revealed themselves to be awful. So it's nice when, when somebody that I like is the opposite of awful and is, is, you know, putting his efforts and his, and his resources uh, to He's work great. for something, something nice like this. It's, it's, it's very nice to see. So, okay. So the, the, um, the podcast is called a nation for thieves. Okay. And you can, you can subscribe to that wherever you, wherever you get your podcasts. That's uh, right. <laughs> and where can we find you? Are you on Twitter? Uh, I am, but you know, uh, after 20 years with the FBI, where we frown on social media, um, I have a, tr a, my Twitter account is now a week old and I believe I have eight followers okay and I don't even know who they are why they're following me um uh, and uh but uh LinkedIn and you know other you know it's just you try to keep a low profile in terms of for security I travel to Africa a lot and I'm in Nairobi I'm in Kampala I'm no longer welcome in South Sudan um and so uh I still have to testify in some of my old FBI cases so uh yeah you don't you try to stay a little under the radar okay so you don't want people to follow you on your twitter accounts which i do i mean it, it's like the necessary evil for people who don't who who, who treasure their lives and security over okay. uh yeah so all right so i won't i won't reveal what it is we'll just pretend you don't have one twitter's might be dead by friday anyway it's all fine you know it might it might be completely i have a there. bit more faith uh but yes <laughs> Uh, but you know what? Look for a nation for thieves. It's on Apple and Spotify, at least. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's a, it's it's everywhere. I I checked it out. Um, I know a guy in, in in my coin world thing who actually was was spent time in in a in a jail cell in South Sudan. Uh, oh. Well, he came. He went there to good. buy banknotes. You know, and he had cash on him, and they were like, "What are you doing with this cash?" He got. He was there after twenty four hours. They let him go, but it was, you know, basically not somewhere where you maybe would want to spend. 
the night in a prison. You know? Yeah, we had some uh, anti-corruption activists in 2017 were picked up off the streets of Nairobi, secreted on the aircraft uh, to Juba, tortured, murdered, thrown in the Nile, and their families didn't know for a year and a half that they were alive. So yeah, when I travel, I have door jams that blare at 130 decibels. I travel with a body tracker. I have kidnap insurance. Of course, by the time I need that, I'm basically screwed. <laughs> and um, so yeah, I... Uh, and uh, you know my blonde hair, blue eyes. I don't blend in Juba, so <laughs> additional security precautions will have to be put into place. Yeah. Well, be careful, please. Um, you know, this. <laughs> uh, and you know, thank you for for doing all this work. I I I I know people listening to this appreciate the work you did for the FBI, um, and, and appreciate the work you're doing now. I think it's wonderful. Deborah Lepravat, thanks so much for taking the time to hang out with me today. Greg, thank you so much. The Prevail theme song is by Matthew Fossa. Zarina Zabriskie, Marie Kost, and Martha Akuna provided the introduction in Ukrainian, French, and Spanish, respectively. Voice talent is by Stephanie St. John, Tally Briggs, Michelle Cantor, and me. Thanks to Allison Gill, Molly Hockey, Kanai Williams, and everyone else at MSW Media. Please subscribe to the Prevail Substack with updates every Tuesday, Friday, and Sunday. Your $5 monthly subscription funds the column and the podcast. Visit gregoliar.com to learn more. Thanks for listening. Drive safely. Don't forget to tip your server. And until next time, we shall prevail. MSW Media.